Hello, thanks for being here. Welcome to another episode of Beyond Busy, the show where we talk productivity, work-life balance and defining happiness and success. My name is Graham Alcott, I'm your host for the show and on this episode I'm talking to Roman Chapala and Mikhail Croyeris. They are the authors of a new book called The Communication Book, 44 Ideas for Better Conversations Every Day. We'll get into that in a moment. So I am on a bit of a mad one at the moment. I've been uh, dashing around the UK on this little mini tour with Evernote. We've been so far in uh, Manchester last week and Birmingham this week. And on the day that this comes out, we will be pretty much on stage in London at the General Assembly and tickets for that are all sold out. So um, it's uh, it's been a really interesting experience so far, just getting around and talking about this white paper uh, that we've written, myself and Biet Bullman from Evernote, on the challenges of triple overload, how to overcome it. It's had a really good reception, actually, really good uh, feedback from the Evernote guys over in the States and some really nice comments coming back through as well. So um, that seems to have gone down really well. So let's get into the episode. This is a really special one for a couple of reasons. Firstly, uh, Roman, Roman and Mikhail had been uh, in London to promote the book. We uh, got a room at Penguin. So we're, we're just on the Strand, basically, in London. And they'd just been at a seminar during the morning and were really kind enough to give me some time to talk about this book, the communication book. They also wrote another book called The Decision Book, which I talk about as well. Um, and the format of these books, if you haven't come across them, is really brilliant. So we talk about it a little bit, but it's basically a kind of diagram and sketch thing and then like a really short chapter. And then they just do that 44 times. So it's really bite sized. I read it. I read the whole thing cover to cover in probably an hour and a half or something. It's like, you know, really um, uh, quite easy read but also just absolutely packed full of wisdom. So really nice little book. And uh, you're going to see this a lot on bookshelves and stuff. The Decision Book was a, a global bestseller. So you're going to see this one a lot as well. So it's called The Communication Book. Um, so let's get into it. And what you're going to hear halfway through the interview, the other reason this is a really special one is you hear what else is going on in Mikhail, Mikhail's life, which is he is one of the leading journalists on the story that's been breaking around the world in the last couple of weeks about Facebook. Facebook and Cambridge Analytica and our personal data and all of that. He is an absolutely key figure in all of this, uh, which was funny because, you know, Penguin didn't tell me that when they said, hey, do you want to do, do an interview with these guys? And so it was, it was only really my digging that, uh, that uncovered this. So I caught him a little bit off guard with the questions and he was very uh, happy to uh, oblige by answering them really well and really technically in a, a foreign language, which to me is just kind of mind blowing, right? Uh, but yeah, really uh, interesting stuff uh, towards the end there. So uh, stay tuned for a load of stuff about why England are crap at penalty shootouts and choking, um, paralysis through analysis, how to influence people, why perfection is like a unicorn, really good practical stuff that we talk about in this episode. So let's get straight into it. Here is my conversation with Mikhail and Roman. <laughs> So um, just at the beginning, just tell me what you've been up to this morning. Like, how's, how's your day going so far? So this morning, we um, had the presentation of the book in, uh, in front of a live audience, and we um, tried to <laughs> teach them somehow 11 little observations that we had on our journey um, um, writing this book. And it ranged from um, why it's not possible not to communicate to... Um, uh, why 
England sucks at penalty shootouts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, a, it was a weird presentation and a fun presentation. And um, yesterday we had some radio interviews, and that was actually fun because I'm more the quiet guy uh, in our team. Um, I'm the guy who draws what we uh, find out, and Mikael is more the writer. So if we have radio interviews, we're kind of equal now yeah. for once. <laughs> and so a couple of things on that. So the, the book is, uh, the style of the book I love. And uh, just to kind of put that in people's heads if they've not read the book yet, and if they've not come across the decision book, we should also mention, which has a very similar kind of style. So are you the one who actually does the drawings that are in the book? as well um, not the finalizing I'm not a I can't I can't use um, Photoshop or whatever you okay. but I'm, I'm drawing it by hand so also yeah. when we have lectures in life I draw on a chalkboard and on a blackboard okay so cool. that's our presentation style as well but the form of our books is <clears throat> that's always the same what we do is we um, pick a topic in this case it was communication science and then we try to reduce very complex theories and sometimes methods onto one page yeah, and yeah. in written and one drawing or one model or how you say I, one diagram. And that's a style we use for all the books we wrote, including the decision book that yeah. you just mentioned before. And I want to talk about some of them in I want to talk about some of them more specifically, but there's there's one that I just wanted to mention which really fascinated me, which was there's the one where you talk about I feel like I'm going to give a spoiler alert, actually, no, uh, sure. but I'm going to give it anyway. Um, so there's one where you're talking about semiotics and the reading of signs and the illustration on the on one side is like a squiggle and a smaller squiggle. And on the other side, it's a squiggle and a smaller squiggle. And I looked at it and I kept looking at it. I was thinking, what is this? And then you turn over and read semiotics and reading signs. And then you realize, oh, this is Hitler on one side with a small mustache and Charlie Chaplin on the other side. And it's this beautiful thing of going back and forth between the picture and the text and then suddenly it, the penny drops. And it, I, I wonder if that was deliberate, first of all. Like, were, were you aiming to have people need to read all of it before they even understood what the picture was? Is that a... Well, do you think a, about that There is a back format? and forth. I think uh, basically we can say that um, most people react stronger to drawings. So for some reasons, our brain is more wired to remember a diagram than a sentence. We rather... We can detect patterns better <clears throat> in a drawing than in a, the structure of a, of a, of a sentence. And so we're playing with this in our books. So exactly what you did, you yeah. look at the drawing, it catches your attention, but you don't really get it. Then you read the text and then you turn back. And that way you like sort of have both, both halves of your brain uh, activated. Yeah, for sure. Um, and one other thing I wanted to go back to from your, you talking about, talking about the talk there. Uh, you're talking about penalty shootouts and why England suck. You've got to tell me why. Yeah. yeah. No, <laughs> I mean, I can, first of all, I can out. say it because I'm, uh, I'm, I'm Swiss, so we don't <laughs> n- even know what a penalty <laughs> shootout is. So. And I'm from Finland and Finland has never been to the World Cup. <laughs> yeah, so we, 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 can, we can say so that. So you can no, be objective No, it's here. just yeah. the situation of a penalty shootout is quite similar to a, a very concise communication situation, and that's the job interview. And <clears throat> it's called maybe you you tell that because that's your the, it's the French the, theory yeah the, the esprit d'escalier yeah. esprit d'escalier is French it means basically a stairways staircase witch mm. and it's an explanation that that tries to show why we are not as witty as we'd like to be and the the scene is the following if we go to a job interview we are fully prepared in our mind we have checked all the boxes and we know all the answers and we walk up the stair 
to the room where we're going to be interviewed. And the minute we enter the room, for some reason, we lose confidence. Yeah. And we are, have a blackout or are feel cloudy and we don't even know our names and we just say stupid things. But the minute we close the door and we walk down the staircase again back home, suddenly we have all these razor-sharp arguments again and witty lines and we can restage the whole interview and we're much smarter afterwards. And that phenomenon is called choking. Mm. And it's the same that we also see in British <laughs> football players. They are all really good at taking penalties. But the minute they walk up to that penalty spot, they remember that they're British. <laughs> mm. okay. There's something that happened in the past. So they lose confidence. Yeah. And there are many studies on this phenomenon, I'm joking. And, and the bottom line here is paralysis through analysis. The minute you question what you're doing at the moment, you lose confidence. So if you're trying to think of oh, where should I shoot? Oh, is it, I'm a good shooter. You lose the confidence. Or in the job interview, the minute you try to be witty or uh, spontaneous or clever, you're the opposite. And there was also something that you said in that chapter as well, where you were talking about how one of the ways to overcome that is because part of choking is nerves and, and freaking out and being in your head and being in that situation. So one of the ways to overcome that is also try and repeat that situation as often as possible. So not necessarily, you don't want to go to job interviews your whole life, right? But if it's about public speaking or it's about, you know, doing presentations or performing under pressure or whatever, try and create the pressure regularly and have practice at that. Never so that, that, I mean, that's a very simple answer yeah. and you gave it. Yes, it's true. But the, there's a huge difference of preparing yourself in your head because yeah. that's what everyone yeah. does. And you think you're prepared, but you're not. And you have to practice under pressure. Yeah. And obviously for a job interview, it's not possible or you don't want to have 200 job interviews yeah. in the end. But you can stage this pressure in that you're not just going through all the answer and all the uh, all that stuff in your head, but you ask a friend to sit at the table and to play the role as the yeah. HR uh, uh, guy that would interview you. And that's a huge difference. And, uh, and, and <clears throat> I mean, you told me yesterday, I can't remember which football player never, uh, which UK football player never shot the penalty after he missed or is it legend? Was it, was it Frank Lampard or someone who, 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 took, who, who missed one shot? And then afterwards, he stopped shooting penalties. The same with, with the Dutch striker, Arjen Robben, oh, okay. famously uh, missed against Chelsea. Yeah. And afterwards, he stopped taking penalties for two years. And that would be, according to the Chokes phenomenon, a very bad strategy. Mm. Because you just continue practice under pressure. So in a friendly, take the penalty. Yeah. So you practice it with a little pressure. And then you'll be up for the next big thing. Yeah. And I guess... A lot of this is about your own sort of mental narrative as well. So, like, if you have two years where you're not practicing penalties, the other thing that you're, that is happening as well as you're not practicing is that your mind is making it into a bigger and a yeah. bigger exactly. issue, and it just exactly. goes on and on. Yeah. So, I just think there's so many applications for that in work and in life, isn't there? So, just how you deal with certain things in pressure situations that could be conversations, that could be, you know, uh, you know, even just putting books out there into the world feels pressured, and and it. In, in introduces writer's block to people's writing and uh, right. I've certainly had that. I don't know if you guys have had, a, had sort of things, right? It's, it's, it's a very common know. thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I want to talk about four of your rules in particular. Um, and the first one I thought was really interesting um, about persuasion. And what we'll do is in the show notes for the podcast, we'll, we'll, we'll put a picture of uh, the book cover up. Um, but 
what you do is you use the book cover and the words on the book cover to really illustrate these kind of six elements of persuasion. So do you, do you want to just talk about that, first of all? So we're on rule one of your book. I mean, first of all, yeah, it's very meta, uh, the mm. meta perspective of the first theory in our book is about our book. Um, <clears throat> maybe I should first start by saying it's, it's this famous theory by um, the American psychologist Robert Cialdini, who, um, who basically asked this very, very good question, when do people say yes? Mm. And he then lead, lead that to uh, the, 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 the concept of um, influencing people. And he put out these six basic rules of when they are likely to agree. And we tried to apply these rules in a picture. And then Roman said, yeah, why don't we take our cover? Because most book covers are designed in a way in order to people. So people say yes and buy yeah. the book. Yeah, and it's it's also for us it was important to start with the book off with something that we think communication is because communication is always a bit strategic. So mm. it's always here for influencing somebody else. Sometimes you're very clear about that if you want to reach something and you have an elevator pitch and you have thirty seconds to convince somebody to buy your idea. But also if I say to my partner deep from my heart, I love you, somehow there lies an expectation in it too that she will answer me right, in yeah. the same way, hopefully. <laughs> so communication is uh, is about manipulation. And if we talk about um, Robert Gialdini's concept of persuasion, yes, we're already in the middle of the yeah. topic that is communication. I'm wondering if we should just tell this guy that we're recording because maybe he has other bits of yeah, scraping maybe. that he can do. Shall we do that? Yeah. Uh, right, right, right. So we were talking about the uh, the in the first chapter, and you were talking about this idea of manipulation of communication, and and often you communicate because you want to uh, get something across, but also you want to get something back from that other person, right? Yeah, the strategic. And process communication, you you intend something, and that's very different in mm. each situation. But actually, that that's true for every communication situation. You intend something, but the good thing is, if it's just working one way, that would be scary. Where yes, so if you could, if we, if communication would just be influencing other people to that you reach your own goal. But yeah. the thing is, and that's the other part of communication. There is a receiver too. And the receiver can also choose how he want to understand that uh, uh, what a sender intends to, and that's normally not the same. Yeah, that's also where conflict starts and all. But I think that's also very important, and that we um, sometimes speak about communication in a way that is about talking and giving good speeches and being witty. But actually, communication is that much also about being quiet and listen and understanding. Yeah. And you've got your um, the the kind of six parts to Cialdini's thing here. So scarcity, you've got only forty four ideas, and it just really like feels like you've got to uh, get that very quickly. Uh, reciprocity, which we've talked about, um, consistency. So part of the book title is forty four ideas for better conversations every day. So this consistency of every day. Um, tell me about liking. <laughs> Actually, well. Uh, yeah, we have our names on the book cover: Mikhail Progeros and Roman Chapeler. And we, yeah, we said that's the liking. Mm. Uh, probably it's not true, but I mean, people don't know us in in the UK. But if there's 
a sender and that will be us then it's a bit more human so it's yeah. not it's not it's it's written of of a human being in that case even of two human beings and also so, uh, Chiadini said that yeah. liking is very important that you are more likely to buy something from someone you like yeah, yeah. so with that I mean, if we're we personal it's not just an algorithm we have written that book this is a way of showing liking because I think there's often this business cliche of I'm not here to be liked I'm here to get the job done and I always think that's totally the wrong way of looking at that situation right it's actually much easier to get the job done if you are liked and you bring Absolutely. people with you yeah. um, and then we've got authority and and consensus so you illustrate that with um, authors of the international bestseller the decision book so you talk about the, your previous book and authority and consensus so I just think that's a really neat way as you say like quite a meta start to the book but so open that up and then within the first couple of pages to see that, I was just like, wow, this is a really cool, just a really cool way to uh, to kick off the book. Um, so um, let's also uh, talk about the idea of principled negotiation. So uh, number seven uh, in your book, which I think this is what's really nice about this again, is that, um, as you said, at the, at the top of the conversation, it's about distilling something that can feel quite complicated down to something really simple. And you've got this really simple little uh, drawing here that, um, <laughs> that, that that talks about a good agreement and how to reach one. So, um, but I mean, on like the that. picture, there's a horse and a unicorn, and I tell you, it was it's very hard for me to draw them. They always look like dogs. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, principle negotiation goes back to this theory by Roger Fisher and William Ewing, um, who in their book Getting to Yes said that there are three, I think four principles, but we showed only three. And the basic idea is that if you try to to negotiate something there are a couple of rules you should stick to. The first rule is think issue, not person. So don't be distracted whether you like or dislike the other person because the minute you are effective emotionally, then you start uh, getting off your rational. So if you like someone, you might go in for an offer that is not that good. If you dislike someone, you cannot meet him. Mm. The second rule is uh, similarities, not differences. And that means don't think I'm in the weaker position or I'm in the stronger position. Rather, always remember that in every negotiation, the other part wants something from you. Because if you would have nothing to offer, he would not negotiate. So whatever situation, you always have something in your hand. And the last um, thing about the unicorn and the horse is you should not think perfection, but you should think good enough. So, of course, we can have this idea about finding the perfect uh, agreement. But perfection is like the unicorn. It's rumored to exist, but no one has ever seen it. <laughs> so you should always have a second, a second agreement up your sleeve, like the second best alternative to in a negotiated agreement. That's the third principle. And I guess to know where you'd ideally like to be, but also where you're happy to settle. Is, and the, yeah, the exactly. Gap, like that could be that. The gap between yeah. that and what yeah. the parameters are around that. Yeah. Um, as you're writing, as, as you're writing these books, obviously you do a lot of research into just really interesting uh, psychological models, and you're trying to distill uh, very complex stuff into really simple uh, diagrams and pictures, and, and really short chapters and stuff as well. And you've got everyone in this book, from Freud to uh, you know, um, Stuart Hall, and all, the, all these kind of really different thinkers from all these kind of different walks of life. Do you feel like, are there particular things that you've written about that you 
then have it have really kind of changed your life and really changed the way that you work? Are there, are there certain ones that you've hit upon that you're like, wow, that's something maybe it articulates what I already knew, but in a different way or man, I never thought of it like that. And I've, I've totally changed. Yeah, I think we both have many examples for that. To me, one was the old uh, famous phrase of the medium is the message mm. that Marshall McLuhan yeah. coined sometimes in the 60s. And he was then talking about color TV, saying that whatever you watch on TV, it's not about that. That's not going to change you. But the fact that there is a TV set in your living room will change your whole behavior and your yeah. lifestyle. Back then, that was radical, but no one really understood what he actually meant. But now... I just realized having smartphones, this is the proof of his thesis because it's not about what you do with your smartphone. It's the fact that you constantly look at it, that you keep it in your hand, that you never forget it anywhere, that it's yeah. changed your whole body posture and culture and living. That is proof to his thesis that the medium or the device is the message. I don't know if you noticed, but as you were just talking about smartphones, Roman just got his phone out <laughs> of his pocket. So even just hearing the word yeah, smartphone, exactly. there's a small part of it which kind of feels addicted there. Yeah, right? and speaking about <laughs> smartphones, um, there's another thing that has been in, 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 in media all over the last three years is um, social media. So I just counted my communication channels that I have on yeah. this little device. Yeah. And I mean, this is just incredible. I mean, I think I'm not the only one, but there is Skype and WhatsApp and there's Message and there's Messenger 1, Facebook, Slack, um, Trello, FaceTime, um, the phone, email. I mean, yeah. it's just uncountable channels and um, I think we can agree on that maybe this is a bit too much mm. um, um, yeah that's something that I that I then combined with our um, readings about FOMO so fear of missing out um, that you're constantly online and constantly yeah. on this channel and each each communication channel says that it will help you to reduce the amount of information but actually altogether it's just the contrary and then yeah i'm sure that yeah. this is for everyone the same so and that's not that that that's just helped us in the research to put words on that phenomenon that everybody feels and we including and for me personally was um the manipulation aspect of communication that that in in in, in political debates how how we form and phrase certain issues um, and depending on what opinion you have you say you give another name to the same thing so uh, we put it in a book with destroying and euphemism uh, where you put in the middle it's the ministry of defense that's one part of the yeah. but you could also call it the ministry of war or why not the ministry of peace so within uh, linguistical um, communication lies a lot of a lot of manipulation too. So that struck me very much while um, uh, doing this study. Enhanced interrogation with another one. Yeah. So it's torture basically, yeah, yeah. but we have this nice phrase to sort yeah. of, uh, mm -hmm. uh, to sort of sugarcoat it in a way. Yeah. And then, um, in, uh, and, and uh, during World War II, well, um, um, Nazi Germany was, uh, yeah, very good in that sense um, to cover up uh, those atrocities with a lot of those names, the concentration camp as such as... So they called them like labor camps, work yes, camps kind, yes, of, kind yeah. of language, so, so it kind of felt the, like there's something positive the rather of language, than... Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the, the other one I really, really want to talk about, because I think this is the one that I 
most struggle with is uh, number 14, how to make small talk. Oh. Um, so before we get into that, how are you with making small talk and what's your, um, what's your, what are your personal tips for making good small talk? <laughs> well, I think um, to me, making small talk is not so much about what you say, but it's actually about creating a space between you and the other person where the other person feels okay. Mm. So this could be smiling, this could be complimenting, this could also be just really being open to someone and not immediately hitting him with issues or not, oh, that's a weird dress you're wearing. <laughs> so I think um, this is really the fine art of small talk, is creating a moment or a space where both people feel at ease to talk about anything. And that's sort of... I, how you do it, that's a different thing, but this should be the goal. So the goal is not to have an interesting conversation, but to have a moment or a space where both feel safe. Yeah. And that links to, you talk about in the book, um, a thing that Gretchen Rubin uses, which is instead of saying, what are you doing for a living? Say, what's keeping you busy at the moment? No, and I tried that and then, for a couple of uh, months now, yeah. this, this question, because I'm living in Spain now, so I try to get to know new people, yeah. uh, to learn the language. So I'm very depending on small talk, even though my Spanish is just very bad. And, and I try really to, uh, to ask this um, Gretchen Rubin's question instead of what are you do for a living? Yeah. Um, what, what keeps you occupied uh, yeah. at the moment? What are you, yeah. What did you do to today? So it's more concise and it helps. It, it, might, it might be slightly dependent on where you are, but what's your, if you had to guess what the percentage was of people who answer that question with a work thing versus who answer it with life and other stuff and, you know, things outside of work, what, like what's the, what's the ratio there? What's the, what's the it's, I there? think it depends if you ask the question in a bar at 10 o'clock or yeah, if, right. you, if you ask this question at the reception in a company uh, after a book presentation, I think it's very dependent yeah. on where you ask the mm -hmm. question, what answer you would get for that. Yeah. But if you've got people who uh, might not, not necessarily love their job or they don't want to talk about their work that much, even if they're in a kind of work environment, that at least gives you that slightly bigger space as you're talking exactly, about. Exactly, yeah, because the, the, the problem range. is that there are those who love their jobs. And if you ask them what do you do for a living, they will talk for 10 minutes yeah. about how yeah. great their job is. But there are also those who don't like their jobs, don't want to talk about it or don't have any jobs. And this way you can give the opportunity to talk about anything that occupies you instead of just reducing it to the work. Yeah, and it's also, if, you, if I ask a, a CEO, so what, are, what is your work? And he says he's a CEO. I mean, then it's... it's, it's <laughs> but if I ask him what's, what's on your mind at the moment, so he can start with a, mm. with a certain issue. That, I think this is a very, very good hint um, yeah. Uh, to start a conversation off and if it's more in the that the, the question we both like very much uh, um, is in another setting that you could use um, when is the last time you made something for the first time oh I like I that I think this is a good okay. question also to and uh, I, I just uh, the listener can now see how you reacted yeah. to it but you Yes, All of a sudden, like your it. eyes went above and you were thinking about mm. when was... Yeah, it's a great yeah, question. Yeah. And also, so, everybody can answer that. Yeah. yeah. You can ask, that, ask a kid that and you can ask it an old man. Yeah. And I'm trying to think what my answer... What's your answer? Do you, do you have a, a sort of reason? Well, I'm giving it a one-hour podcast interview. You can now answer witty and funny as Mike, uh, Michael did, but... I'm, I would come back with the gun. Yeah, it's this 
sabbatical that I do with my yeah. family in Spain, in Spain, and so on. Then and I could continue mm. to talk about that. Then all of a sudden we are in this um, conversation, which is no longer small talk. Then yeah, yeah. yeah. Then you so, know something about me. And so I suppose it doesn't have to always be something that you've made, but it's also just like when were you trying something new or new skill or exactly whatever, when did you like, yeah. do something yeah. last time? When did you have a, a feeling that? That was for the for a feeling that's also possible yeah. to give an answer, but the, I had for the first time the feeling of being happy or being lonely. Well, that's already very personal, yeah. then, but then still, again, you have all the possibilities. Yeah, to answer. I remember what mine is it would be that, uh, or uh, now that you've slightly, slightly opened up the question, I've, I've kind of remember when, when was the last time I had that kind of feeling? It was about three weeks ago. I went to the there's a thing in Brighton where I live uh, called the Sunday Assembly. This is a church without any religion. So you arrive on a Sunday morning and then you sing pop songs together with other people and then you listen to talks and the subject was near and far. So it's like people talking about stuff that was happening in Brazil in the favelas and someone else was talking about Aboriginal art in Australia and all this stuff. And the talks were really fascinating. And then there was about two or three minutes of silent contemplation where everyone just sits in a room in silence. And so it's all the stuff that... that you know, I grew up with because my parents are a Christian and I grew up in that kind of church environment. So it's all the stuff that you would get from the church, but without religion. So you've got people who are religious there, people who are not religious, and everyone's just in the same place and mm-hmm. having this kind of nice Sunday morning thing. And I had had it on my list to go and do that for a long time. And then I finally had a weekend where I was around and I had two other friends who were going to come. And it was the weekend that the clocks were changing as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so everyone had an hour less sleep and people slept in. And so I was texting in the morning and I was the only one. Uh, <laughs> they were just in bed. They're like, no, nah, not going to make it. We'll come for food afterwards. But no, no, it's like it's at half 10 in the morning or something on mm-hmm. a Sunday. And so that feels like even half nine. And so I was just like, ah, screw it. I'm just going to go on my own. So I went on my own, didn't know anybody arrived there. And that for me was quite a big deal. I, 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 I'm not someone who loves small talk, right? Coming mm-hmm. back to the small talk thing. Um, so that felt like quite a big deal, but I was so happy that I mm-hmm. pushed that barrier and did it. So that was, that was my answer to that question. Oh, good. Um, let's talk about one more. Um, I think the most taboo one in your book is about lies, right? Lies, white lies, grey lies. Um, so um, number 20 in the book uh, talks about lies. Uh, do you want to talk about the, the four different types of lie? And, and, and also how can we make some lessons here for uh, for business as well like what are some what are the, some of the thing, things that you might be able to uh, take away from the, from, from a kind of business context sure i mean if you look at lies not only at who's lying who's not lying there are different degrees of lying so mm. to speak and one famous lie is the so-called white lie yeah and that means basically uh, only the person lied to benefits so this is a selfless lie if um, if you just want to be polite, and I say, oh, I feel tired. The other person said, no, you look great. <laughs> so that is a lie because he looks tired. But <laughs> the other person feels good. And it didn't cost you much to, to give that white yeah. lie. And um, also we have this it's a typical altruistic lie, I think. You just want to help the other person. But then we have the gray lie. That's somewhere in between, right? That's when both the liar and the person lie too. And... Um, that's more if I ask you, how are you? And you feel bad, but you don't want to reveal it. And you say, oh, I'm great. And that is a lie because it's not true. But also it takes the burden from me 
because you will say I'm feeling really bad. Yeah, I will yeah. be also attached by it. And then we have um, the black lie. That's when only the liar benefits. This is really bad. So um, although you're guilty, you reject all accusations. So everyone knows you robbed the bank, but you said, no, I didn't. Mm. So this leads nowhere. And then finally, it's the red line. This is when no one benefits, and this is the lowest form of lying, <laughs> as they say. And it's um, saying something with complete awareness that the other person knows the statement to be false. And this is sometimes things we hear in, uh, in the political world. I think we all uh, remember this sentence, the largest audience ever to witness an inauguration. <laughs> I love that example. And when it, when you read that sentence, it's like, oh, and you know, he has so many more of those as well. Yeah. Right? This is the greatest building <laughs> yeah. ever built. Like everything he says is is all a red lie. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And it, it's just, it's so fascinating when you see it written down like this, because when you're then talking about who benefits from it and the idea of a white lie, you know, it's, it's a really nice little um, sort of rule of thumb because I have this question in my head, like I really struggle with lying and I struggle with like the idea of being inauthentic. And sometimes a white lie is in opposition to being inauthentic, yeah. right? So you're not telling someone how they really look or how you really feel. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're not being true to yourself in that one sense, but it's probably still kinder in most circumstances. Mm-hmm. But that little rule of thumb to say, if I'm going to tell a lie, does the other person benefit more than I do? Yeah. It's just a really nice little... Yeah, that's, that's very well summed up yeah. because it's not only about you. It's conversations or communication is always about two people. Mm. So you should not only think about how do you feel, but how does the other person feel? Yeah. Then again, there's this beautiful line by apparently Mark Twain, and we took it into the book because I think it's interesting. And he said, if you tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. Mm. Yeah. So he said, you only have to remember all your lies <laughs> because you have to cover them up. But if you're always honest, like you are, yeah. it's easier to just walk through life. I wonder how much of that is because I'm notorious for having a terrible memory. So it's like, <laughs> if I just helps. start, it's it like a survival <laughs> tactic, right? Like you have to tell the truth because otherwise it's going to come back and bite you on the ass pretty right. quickly. Um, and I suppose the, the, the follow-up question around that is, do you... Do you get a sense of people feeling uncomfortable talking about the topic of lying? Like it feels like, particularly in, in a business sort of context, it feels like something that we shouldn't talk about or that shouldn't be, it shouldn't be an explicit thing that's on the table in that way. And there's this moment that we all know. So you write an email to a business partner and then you don't get an answer. Mm-hmm. That's, I think that's in business life. Lying. It's not lying. It's not saying anything. Or they uh, no. The line would be, "I never received your." Yeah, yeah. But but the thing is, I just want to change a little bit the topic of 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 by not saying anything. You they they telling you something. So I think that's very. I think I hate that when people do that. I try not to do that. so what do you mean there? So if someone's sending you an email with a question in it and then you don't respond? Yeah, you want to have something from from your from your business partner. Let's say, yeah. um, could, hey, can we appear on your radio show, on your podcast? Yeah. And you just don't answer. So I think that has oh, something to do with yeah. Because, yeah. I don't know, 
because you're busy or you have a reason why you don't answer to yeah. me. So I think that's uh, lying or not communicating and saying something by not saying anything. Yeah. I think that's a very interesting communication situation. I can't like give advice what to do or I, it's just for me personally, I think uh, it struck me more and more since we've wrote this book, how also this um, um, electronical communication, the written communication works. Uh, mm. um, it's not, maybe you don't call it lying, but you call it, um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't have a name for it. Yeah. Yeah. I've, an observation. I've, been, yeah. I've been trying to say no more authentically with those things recently. So if I, so I, what I get quite a lot is I think people just Google business podcasts and they get a list of 50 business podcasts and then they just spam all of those 50 people saying, Hey, I've got this person I'm doing PR work for. They would be a great guest on your podcast. I had one last week where they just said, the reason for my email is to book, you know, insert name here onto the podcast. It wasn't like, would you be up for having him on? It's like, the reason for, email, for my email is to book this guy onto your podcast. So I was like, yeah. No, it doesn't work like that. Right? And so I probably, I probably would have used to, in the past, uh, somehow, like, make some kind of excuse, right? Like, I'm too busy. Yeah. I've, I've, I've interviewed too many people. I don't need more people. And like now, I'm a bit more down with saying, I'm sorry, but I don't think this person's the best fit for my podcast, or it doesn't, it doesn't quite fit with my audience or where I'm trying to take it, or whatever. So I'll be that little bit more authentic with it and say, no, I've decided this is a no, rather than saying, come back to me in six months or I'm busy or whatever. Like just That's to very be much more real with That's it. That's very interesting know? because I think one, yeah. one question, of course, that we all have to answer with all our busy time is what do we say no to? Mm. So it's a much more interesting question than what do you want or what yeah. do you say yes to? But once we've decided what you want to say no to, the next step, and that is really difficult, is you have to actually say no. Yeah. And what Roman is referring to is people who have to say no often don't say anything at all. Mm. And that is annoying. And also it's, you have to overcome that. And then the next step would be to just give a wide lie and saying we're whatever, we are in New York. Yeah. <laughs> and the last step, and now obviously you have just <laughs> made that step, is to actually be honest. And really try to say, why don't you want that person on the radio show? Which might be a little painful for both of you, mm. but it's very honest. Maybe the real honesty is good in that moment. So I find that interesting approach. Yeah, and I, I suppose it depends on what it is. You know, I think for me, in a lot, if, if I re- re- reverse that the other way around and it was me trying to get on someone else's podcast, if they come back to me and say, no, and here's why, then at least that's some feedback, right? That's mm-hmm. some kind yeah. of way of me saying, okay, so if I was more like this or if I did this or if I had a book that was like this, that's the kind of thing they'd be interested in or it gives me some kind of guidelines on how to improve or change if I'm still trying to chase that thing. Mm-hmm. It just, I don't know, that just feels like it's more, It's in a way it can be more constructive, but yeah. also it can also be less kind as well. So it's, I guess, depending on the circumstance and how it's going to be read and that yeah. kind of thing. Um, we were talking a few moments ago about uh, Trump and I wanted to talk to you about, Mikhail, I did a little bit of digging on you. Uh, and in your journalism work, you um, wrote an article quite a long time ago about Cambridge Analytica and right, yeah. Trump and all of that. And I just wanted to ask you about that specifically. And um, what's your sort of current take on what's happening with Facebook? And I saw there's an amazing picture as we record this. Uh, the picture came out yesterday of um, Mark Zuckerberg in front of Congress. 
with like a, a gazillion cameras all around him, which is just an amazing shot that someone mm-hmm. managed to get. Um, but you were writing about this uh, a year and a half ago, something like that? Yes, yeah. Um, and so, like, what's what's your current take? And then maybe let's tell a little bit more of the story of that as well, if that's okay. Sure. I mean, we wrote it back then, I wrote together with my, with my uh, reporter colleague, and we were one, together with The Guardian, one of the first to actually try to dig into this whole Cambridge on Hill yeah. case. And that was a month after um, uh, Trump uh, won the, the, his race. And at that moment, it was not really clear what were they doing. And all the, there were no whistleblowers. We just knew he had worked with Ted Cruz. And then he worked mm. with, with, with the Leave campaign. And, he had, and they had worked with, um, with Donald Trump. And we tried to explain um, what is the psychological method behind it, based on the work by Kosinski and Kogan. And so we introduced that. And we... Of course, raises this question, what if um, we can actually influence voters? And most experts say, yes, you can if yeah. you have the right data. And with Facebook, for example, you suddenly have billions of, of information on everyone. So that was, um, that we, we raised that in, an, in our article. It got a huge response and was very criticized. Yeah, <laughs> and so, yeah. Yeah. Um, how did you come across the story? What was the, the genesis of that? Well, the genesis is that the first story was in The Guardian in 2015, where they, um, someone wrote about the, um, the work of Cambridge Analytica. And then we, we got in touch with uh, Michal Kosinski, who was the researcher who had come up with this psychological method of uh, sort of deciphering your likes on Facebook. Yeah. And through that, being able to profile a person really, really closely. And that method, and then and through different ways, ended up in the hands of Kogan, and Kogan sold it to Kandralitika. And this we tried to, to follow in small steps. And back then, the people were open to talk about it because no one realized that this is something illegal. People were actually proud of, hey, mm, yes, we work with yeah. Kandralitika. And this, of course, has changed now a little bit. And I guess in those early stages, they were seen as this new, cool, groundbreaking company doing it in a different way. Yeah, they picture themselves. I mean, the mm. pictures, if you look at the pictures on YouTube now that they did two years ago, it's yeah. incredible what they yeah. tell you because they lay open their whole method and say, we have this great idea. Mm. We're just going to tap all the social media things and then we have all the information. Yeah. And you see the audience clapping. And <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, what's your take on how that story has developed? Were you frustrated with the fact that it's taken so long? Because um, you've obviously probably then still had a bit of an interest in that and been following that for a, a period of time. Like, what, what, what's that Well, it like? was clear that sooner or later someone would come up from Cambridge Analytica mm. and tell their st- inside story, so a whistleblower. And this now happened with the Guardian Observer work, which is yeah. great journalism. And we should give a shout out to Carol uh, Calderwaller, who I've been following on Twitter for a while, but she's just plugged away at this for a long, long time, hasn't she? Absolutely, and she's yeah. been criticised and hated, and she's really just followed her path, and I think this is great journalism. And what she basically showed is that all our fears, is, it might be even worse than yeah. that. Yeah. And what we see now is that it's not only Facebook, maybe all many other companies have worked this way. And it was interesting yesterday to see Mark Zuckerberg wearing a suit and a Type for true, actually, first yeah. Time in his yeah. life, and really trying to appear like a nice person. Yeah. Because, and if people do that, you can tell something's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> He's like the teenager that uh, gets a criminal 
trial and has to go to court and they have to buy a suit just for that Which right is a like, little bit <laughs> too big <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah a little bit yeah. <laughs> like they wear they wear a hoodie all the other time but then like exactly. in the court they exactly. wear that yeah yeah so now now i don't know what's going to happen nobody knows but um what we see is that some of these things that we hold for granted are now being plucked apart yeah so for example you just give away your data and suddenly you can ask wait a minute i have rights for my for writing a book this is my book what if my behavior is also my behavior? Facebook shouldn't own my behavior. Mm. But now, based on digital data, they own my behavior. So they have sold the way I am to other companies. And I think this is a, a rights question. And yeah. this, will be, this will come up now. And this can, this can destroy many companies. And this will also change the way we look at um, how data influences in our life. Because they say the most common lie told in the English language now is, I have read the terms and conditions. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and I guess back to that whole thing of what kind of lie is that? Well, mm-hmm. we we thought for a long time that it benefited us the most to, uh, well, we, we thought it benefited yeah, them yeah, to yeah. tell that lie because it just gets us into the software much mm-hmm. more quickly. Now we've realized that it's actually a consequence to us if we make that lie because then everybody owns our soul. But there was a beautiful moment yesterday in the hearing because um, he was criti- Mark Zuckerberg was criticized for his terms of conditions were so short. Mm. And then Mark Zuckerberg said something that I think is really true. He said, I wanted to make it short, otherwise people don't read it. Yeah. <laughs> this shows the whole problem yeah. of, of Facebook. I guess it also shows that you're, with some of those things that are on such a big scale like that, you're kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't, right? Like, mm. the, you know, he's going to get criticized in either, yeah. in either capacity. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the other thing I want to talk about on a, on a sort of personal note, because I, I like to kind of get beyond just the stuff that's in, in the book and also just talk about like you guys as people. It's like your sabbatical, Roman. So like you're, you're currently learning tennis. I, no, I play right? tennis, so you but play I tennis, need but you're to learning, improve You're my... learning uh, a certain technique of hitting spin. spin yeah, right? no, the thing is, I, I, <laughs> yes, I do. Because I changed two years ago. I, t- I changed from um, 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 double-handed backhand to single-handed backhand. Okay. So now I have problem returning this very spinny uh, uh, service. So uh, that's, no, I mean, this is, it's just, I want to play as much tennis as I can in Valencia, where I yeah. live now with my family for one year. I do some work, but I really try to do things that I wouldn't do if I am um, where I live in Switzerland. So, and uh, so I took a sabbatical last year, and I know there'll be people who are listening to this who are either thinking about that or might have opportunities in the future to do that. Um, what were your boundaries and agreements with yourself around what kind of work you would let in versus not and how long it, it would be for? And, you know, just what was some of the thinking around deciding to do that in the first place? We decided um, there are a lot of technical reasons why we decided to go now because our son is uh, pre um, kindergarten. So okay. uh, we want to go back to Switzerland. So we would said, for one year, it will be more difficult for the next, what, 10 years? Yeah, yeah. So that's one reason. Then we was the, the, the question where, and we wanted not to travel, but we wanted to stay somewhere. So we want to have basically the same life that we have in Switzerland <laughs> with, in the sun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and not... That's really Too not far away, but he actually yeah. didn't want to learn Spanish or anything. It was really just to live somewhere else, just the two of us as parents and with our kids. 
And um, and since in Britain or Ireland the sun is a bit a problem, um, uh, and Australia and the US is too far away, and uh, so it's some, somehow we reduced it to Spain. And limited in uh, the work was because if you take the action of saying, I'm going to change my life for one year, you have to take that decision at least one year before you go. Yeah, and the yeah. thing is, I know a lot of friends, they take that decision, but then the work starts. I, I, I wasn't prepared for how many things you have to think of when you want to do it. So it's to decide and dream about it. That's very easy. But then to do it, we really just two or three months before we left for Spain, we were discussing, do we really want to do this? Because this is just, this is just exhausting now to, to, to prepare. Now we are very happy that we did it and we are now quite established in where we are. So, because um, change yeah. is upheaval, right? So yes. just even the act of moving house and yes. think and starting to have to think about which bits of work you're going to accept or not, yeah, and yeah. all those kind of things. And I think it's we want to have a, a, an easy life because that the, an easy life and in a simple city as Valencia is. But our thing is we want to learn Spanish. We we don't speak Spanish, so yeah. that's enough challenge and enough change. Uh, someone is looming at the door there, so uh, I think that that's our publisher. <laughs> I don't want to be uh, late for your No, problem. no, this is what, no, this is not knocking on the door. It's just someone who knows. Oh, oh, right, okay, cool. Yeah, no, uh, but we are nearly out of time. Um, so the book is The Communication Book. Um, I, I loved it, I have to say. And it's a really kind of simple book to be able to pick up, just get something bite-sized out of. Like, it's a really perfect kind of coffee table gift kind of book in lots of different ways but just distilled with just loads of wisdom and research and really fascinating stuff. So I really loved it. And the decision book as well, I must mention as well, uh, another really good book. How can people get hold of you guys and uh, how can they connect with you? And, uh, and also what are you, what are you doing next? So let's, let's talk about that. Um, yeah, they can connect you with us in all those hundred communication all those channels, channels on your phone. That we <laughs> uh, did, right? channels, yeah, no, but, but we have a website, which we, have in German and in English too, and it's uh, rtmk.ch. Ch is for uh, for Switzerland, and, and there RT is, is Roman Chapela, and MK is Michael Trugueros. That's yeah, me yeah. and him. Yeah. Uh, um, so you find all our channels there, and we're on Twitter and on Facebook and so on. And uh, what we do next, and that's always the question. I mean, now um, we talk about communication, and the more we do it now. Uh, I actually like it, and we had this lecture today. So what we like the most is is um, having speeches and, yeah. and writing, uh, no, drawing life on on stage. So that's what we would like to pursue a bit more. Mm. We have uh, new ideas for books, probably too much, uh, um, too many ideas, too many, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and too often we have new ideas. I mm. um, mostly you. I'm I'm always the guy in our team that says. Now we said we're going to do this, and now you want to change everything again. And, uh, Mika is more like a, a, let's do say? something new. Yeah, let's ah. do something new. And mm. um, 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 since we're now living a bit apart, and um, we and we not only writing books together, as you just uh, introduced Mika as a journalist as well. I have all the other things that I do, so it's also a little bit a break from each other <laughs> in yeah. Spain. Right. So we. Uh, yeah, you can concentrate on your writing uh, and your editing. And, and you and your own tennis skill. One hand that And what's next for you specifically, Mikhail? Like, what, what are you working on journalistic wise and elsewhere? Well, I think the Facebook lead, you, you will have to follow that, just. That's yeah. the big story of our time, and uh, we will dig into that. 
we now just had a story out on um, how um, Facebook um, might have influenced the, uh, the parliament uh, vote in, in Iceland mm, okay. with the voter button. Mm. I think there are many, many stories within that company and around the whole thing that will evolve. So it's now. a spreading thing. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So plenty to keep you guys busy. Uh, and just to say, it's just been a real pleasure chatting and um, sharing some of the ideas from the book. Um, do go and get a copy of the communication book. And uh, guys, just thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank, thank you. you. So thanks again to Roman and Mikhail for being on the show. Really enjoyed that one. And it was great being in the offices at Penguin as well. Uh, I nearly signed with Penguin, actually, uh, when I was... Uh, in talks with a couple of different publishers at the time to take on Productivity Ninja when it was a self-published book and put it out. And I went with Icon as the kind of smaller, leaner, um, more responsive kind of partner. I still think that was the right call, but very interesting to be in the offices of such a major publisher as Penguin's Harper, Penguin HarperCollins. And I was with Penguin for a little bit in Canada, and that's since since moved. So I do have a little bit of uh, kind of Penguin family uh, kind of history, I guess, but uh, very interesting being in a big publisher. They had Jordan Peterson's book on display as well. Um, I just hope they don't ask me to interview him. That's all I'm going to say on that. Uh, and one thing that was quite fun is the publicist at the end gave me a couple of other books to take away and read and see if I wanted to interview people. One of them was uh, a book called Be More Pirate. And we were having quite a good conversation about it uh, just in the lift on the way up saying, oh, yeah, check out Be More Pirate. Cool, cool. And I was saying, yeah, that'd be cool. Let's do a podcast of Pirate versus Ninja. That'd be fun. And then on the way out, I got given the book and it's by a guy that I know, a guy called Sam Conniff. And uh, I had no idea that it was his book. I opened it up and there's me being quoted in the book. So uh, that was just like the weirdest, most surreal thing. There's a little, a little quote from me on the productivity chapter of his book. Uh, so we will get Sam on the podcast and really looking forward to that. Uh, so right here, right now, it's a, it's a sunny day here and I... I'm going to take my son off to soft play. My, um, my, my son's mum is away at the moment. So I'm on like full time dad duty right now and, uh, just trying to get a little bit of work in, in around the fringes, around the margins, uh, either when he's in, uh, nursery a couple of days or kind of in the evenings if I've got him during the day. So, uh, lots going on, lots going on and, uh, looking forward to, uh, perhaps getting back into a bit more of a work mode, uh, once I get back into, uh, co-parenting rather than single parenting over the next uh, week or so. Uh, so thanks again for being uh, here on Beyond Busy. Um, you will find all of the uh, links to the stuff that we talked about in the show notes. They're over at getbeyondbusy.com. If you're a first-time listener, thanks for tuning in for the first time, but please do subscribe and you will get the next episode straight to your app in two weeks' time. We do this every two weeks and we'll be back in two weeks with another episode. We've got Marie Benton, who is the founder of Choir With No Name, a homelessness choir uh, that is now all over the country and another organisation that I know really well. So looking forward to that coming up in two weeks' time. Thanks, as always, to Mark Stedman, my producer from Bloomsbury Digital. And thanks also to the crew at Think Productive for spreading the word. Thinkproductive.com if you want to find out more about our workshops. And until then, take care. See you in two weeks. Bye for now. Bye.